if you've been coming to Gateway for a while, so you know that we have for the last two years been going through the Gospel of Luke and uh, wanted to set aside three weekends to talk about Oikos. And last weekend we started this discussion and um, we're going to carry it on today and next week and then we'll dive right back into um, Luke. But if you uh, are new to Gateway and Oikos is not familiar to you, uh, the word Oikos is a Greek word. It does not mean yogurt, it means household. That's what the word oikos means in Greek. And so once you realize that, then you'll know a little bit of Greek. And um, back in the days of Jesus and like the Apostle Paul, when you're reading the Gospels and, and the book of Acts and some of the epistles, sometimes you'll see the word household or family, and that's often the Greek word oikos. But back then when they thought about a household, they thought differently than today because today when we think of a household, we often think of you know, the people who live under our roof. But back then, um, they thought relational. And basically, when, if you were to ask someone who's in your household, they would just think of people that they have regular interaction with and people with whom they have loving, influential relationships. So you might have some people that live in your house that would be in your oikos, but you might have a relative uh, who lives down the street or lives in another state, but you, you talk with them a lot. You have a loving, influential relationship. Maybe a friend, a neighbor, someone who works down the, uh, works with you or goes to school with you. And studies say that the average American has somewhere between eight to 15 people who qualify as oikos relationships, people with whom we have regular interaction, loving, influential relationships. And as you study the New Testament, what you find is that it's in these relationships, basically, that most people are brought to faith in Christ and that most people grow in their faith. It's the oikos. I mean, we have a lot of relationships, but it's the oikos relationships that impact us and the ones that God wants to use uh, us to impact as well. And we're going to talk in this series about three ways in which we, which we do that. Last week, we talked about um, helping our oikos know Christ personally. Today we're going to talk about the need in our oikos to grow together as a spiritual family. So um, talked about no, talking about grow this week. And um, to kind of get us thinking down this path, I wanted to share with you uh, my last couple days, which were just fantastic. So my weekend is Thursday and Friday because I work on Saturday and Sunday. So my work week is kind of Saturday through Wednesday. And then Thursday is my Saturday and Friday is my Sunday. So now you're thoroughly confused. So anyways, uh, it was, uh, and probably like many of you on my weekend, I have a lot of stuff, a lot of chores, a lot of things I got to get done. So I had my to-do list and I was just ready to go on Thursday morning. Got up Thursday morning, opened up my list, started to look. For some reason, I had forgot that I had an appointment with the eye doctor and right smack in the middle of the day. And so I kind of had to rearrange some stuff. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go in and they're going to check my prescription and I'm going to be out of there. Half hour in and out, be good. So anyways, it was time for me to go. I'd rearranged all my, my stuff and I got in my car. I'm driving down the 14 and uh, heading down the road and it's raining really hard and people start hitting their brakes. So I hit my brakes, but my brakes don't do what other brakes do. They're not stopping for some reason. And this happened to me about a year ago. It was really unnerving, but it happened again. So I hit the brakes and they don't work. Well, technically they work, but I had to stand up and jump on them. And then they would start to kind of the Flintstones thing, you know. So now I'm kind of starting to slow down a little bit. And I realize basically that I don't have brakes. And I've, I've got to make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to go uh, have them looked at? But I had this appointment and I thought, I'm almost there. I just need to get this over with. 
it'll be fine. So I carefully make my way to the optometrist's office. I go in, I'm, you know, ready to go. Let's go, let's get this done. And then a lady comes out and goes, okay, well, first we're gonna do your, you know, your field vision test. Oh, have you ever done a field vision? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where they put you in the machine and you have to click every time, you know, right? So it's like, oh, and if you've had like a bunch of coffee, it's a terrible test to have to do. You just, I'm just pressing the button, you know, like, sir, we haven't started yet. I do, I'm seeing dots, you know? So anyways, did that, did some other stuff. And then I go into the office and they're like, okay, we're going to dilate your eyes now. And I'm, wait, what? We're going to dilate your eyes. And so anyways, right, dilated my eyes. Now I can't see anything. And uh, two and a half hours later, I'm walking out of the uh, optometrist's office, just crossing stuff off my to-do list, feeling completely defeated, and I walk outside, and it's pitch black, right? But my eyes are dilated, so it, it, oh, so I have to put my sunglasses on, which makes people wonder what's going on with me. So I'm walking around, I got my sunglasses on, I can't see anything, I get in my car, no worries, I, I know how to drive, like the back of my hand back out and remember, oh, I don't have any brakes. This is going to be awesome. So I can't see it's raining and I have no brakes. I still managed to drive through Starbucks. I'll just say that. So but I drove home and I, I get home and I realize I can't do anything on my to-do list today. Just super bummed about that. So, you know, I'd sit there and, and, and then I decide, well, I, you know, Friday's out too because I'm going to have to change all of my plans and I'm going to need to go in and get my car worked on, get the brakes fixed. So next morning I get up, cross everything off my to-do list, get my car, carefully drive down, pull up, you know, get the, my brakes aren't working. Oh, don't worry, we'll get it fixed. I go inside. So I, I got my laptop, I got my phone, texted my daughter and, you know, time's going by. An hour goes by to come in and they say, well, so like, it looks like you need a new master cylinder. So, you know, I'm not a mechanic, but anything with the word master sounds expensive to me. But I was like, well, okay, you're the mechanic. What do I know? Just replace the master cylinder. And then, so, you know, about an hour goes by and then they come in and say, oh, well, that actually didn't do it. We think you need all new brake lines, right? So don't worry, that's not as expensive as the master cylinder. No, okay, so I go work. About an hour goes by, they come in and go, you know, it's weird, like you're, you still don't have any brakes. So we replaced the calipers and we, were, we did this and we did this. And, you know, the good news, so basically I'm there the entire day. And at one point, finally, I'd eaten all of their popcorn, right? There's no popcorn left. I'm just, my, my, my computer's dead. I'm tired of watching. Uh, the, all they have is on the TV is um, the weather station. And all they talk about is the tornado on the coast and how Armageddon's coming. And so finally, I'm like, you know, can I just, can you guys give me a ride home for a while? Because it's late in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pulling out. There's like three people under my hood. You know, I don't even want to see. I just go home. I'm there for a little while. They call and they go, all right, well, your car's ready to go. I'm like, awesome. I did, so you fixed it? Well, it works better than it did. Not a good clue when the mechanic says that. So I get a ride back, get in the car, pull out. Yeah, pretty much no brakes. Like, so the good news is I have all new brakes. 
The bad news is, well, they don't work. So anyways, I'm, so I get home and I realize we're not done with this. So I've got this vehicle and I, I don't have brakes. My entire to-do list, nothing got done. And I'm, I'll have to admit, I'm a to-do list person. I like to check off boxes and all that stuff. So I'm sitting there. It's in the afternoon. It's basically my Sunday afternoon. I feel exhausted emotionally from my weekend. And I realize I got to go back to work the next day. And then I remember, oh, we're going over to some friend's house for the evening. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, oh, I just want to go sit by the fireplace and pout. I just want to like have comfort food. I want Cheetos and Doritos and Taquitos and Eatos because those are comfortable. I just want to veg out. And I don't want to do anything. And my wife comes home and she's like, are you ready to go? And I'm like, no, I don't want to go. My wife's awesome. She's like, okay, I'm going to get ready. <laughs> so anyways, she's getting ready. And I, but I thought about it. And, you know, I remembered it's one of those times in my life where, where kind of emotionally my flesh says, no, let's not go. But my heart says, well, you know you should because that's just always good for me. Going and being around other Christians, being around spiritually mature people. And sure enough, didn't want to go. We went. We had a great time, you know. By the time the evening was done, I got in my car and forgot I didn't have brakes. Um, you know, it was great. We had a great time together. And it just reminded me, though, of what I've known, and that is that I'm always better when I'm around other spiritually-minded people, always. Everything about me is better. My attitude is better. Uh, my priorities are better. My prayer life is better. When I get to pray with other Christians, my, my interaction and understanding of Scripture is better when I'm around other believers and we can talk about it and live it out. The, my, my words are better, my thoughts are better, my heart's better, my worship, my decisions. Everything about me is better and that shouldn't be a surprise because what we learn in Scripture is this, that, that we were designed by God. We were hardwired by God to thrive together. We are better together. And this is what the Bible teaches us again and again and again about ourselves. We are designed to thrive together. And just you know, think back. Go back to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of, of Genesis. God creates the world. Remember this? Creates the world, sits back, looks at it and says, man, this is good, right? Except for one thing. There's one thing that, that was not good. You remember what that was? He said, it's not good that man be alone. So God said, we'll create some more, right? So you're not alone. Go forward a little bit. Think about Jesus. God comes down to earth. He starts his ministry that we've been, we've been studying, the book of, of Luke. And have you noticed that when he started his ministry, he didn't you know, walk down the street and find Peter and say, hey, Peter, you know, why don't you and I start meeting on Thursday afternoons? And uh, Andrew, why don't you and I meet on Tuesday mornings? And, um, you know, Philip, why don't... No, he got some guys and he made a team. He made a team of guys because we're always better together in spiritual community. Uh, when, when Jesus saves us, it's interesting, isn't it, that it says he, he puts us in his family. So we're not alone. He puts us in his family. He, he, he puts us in his church. Because we were designed, we were created to thrive together. Now, the interesting thing is we live in a day and age that, uh, where, where we have the ability to be more connected relationally than in any other time in history, really, when you think about it. So many things, like for instance... We have vehicles that we can get in so we can go visit people that we love and that we want to spend time with. It hasn't always been that easy. You know, like if, if, 
If I want to go visit my in-laws who live across the river in Milwaukee, I don't, I don't have to get on a barge and sail across the Columbia River and then get in a covered wagon and, you know, get down. Like, I can just get in my car and drive over there. As long as I don't have to brake, I can get right over there and there's no problem, right? But, so we can get, you can visit people who aren't even close to you anymore with transportation. It's just it's super easy. And then we have other things, like there's a, this invention you've probably heard of. It's called a cell phone. And cell phones are amazing because you can call anyone at any time from anywhere in the world now, right? No excuse. We can talk to people whenever we want. And then if we have the right kind of phone, we can not just talk to them, we can like video talk to them. We can Skype them or FaceTime them. I started doing that with my daughter who's at college in Arizona. I just love doing it. She doesn't understand, you know. I, I, I'll, I'll FaceTime her. Dad, why are you FaceTiming me? Because, honey, I just want to see you. I just want to see your face. She's she doesn't really get it, but I, you know, I get it. I, I, I think it's great that you can talk and video conference and we have email, which I detest, but we still have it and you can use it uh, for long form stuff. Texting, which I love. Like I always tell people, if you got in touch with me, don't call me, like don't email me, just text me. That's, that's the way to do it. I like texting because there's no grammar involved, right? You, you, and you don't have to use punctuation. It's, it's awesome. And then, of course, there's Facebook, and a lot of people use Facebook to communicate. And then, so there's a couple that are, that are newer to me. There's Snapchat, which I hadn't used until um, my daughter left for college. And she's like, Dad, you got to use Snapchat. It's the way to go. And then, she, and then there's Instagram, which I'm, I'm fairly new to. In fact, Instagram for me is an interesting thing. So my, my, I have an Instagram account, but I didn't set it up. And by the way, I'll tell you this because um, I just got it recently. And a lot of people are um, following me. Like, I'll just tell you, don't do that. Because there's nothing on there we're seeing. I actually haven't posted anything on Instagram. It's all my daughter. So what she decided was she wants a dog for Christmas. Like that's going to happen. So, um, so, she, set, so she, she, she sets up an Instagram account in my name and then she links it to like 25 dog feeds, right? And then she texts me and says, Dad, download this app and put in this code. And I do. And now I get these messages all day long on my, on my phone. Like, you know, new bulldog picture, new gorgie picture. It's like all day long and stuff. But the, on the other side of this is we have the ability to be connected with people, to be, to be relating with people. And this is why I mention this, because in the midst of this whole revolution of um, texting and Instagram and all this stuff, sociologists are talking a lot these days about something they call relational poverty. Now, we all know what financial poverty is, but relational poverty is this, they describe it this way, it's lacking uh, the intimacy and connections with other people to live a meaningful life. Relational poverty is when we are surrounded by people but we are relationally alone. It's uh, someone who comes to church and sits in a room full of people and leaves feeling like they were all by themselves. They didn't have one meaningful connection. It's, uh, it's, it's somebody going to school uh, in a school full of peers and classes with teachers and feeling like they don't know anyone. It's someone working in an office with cubicles all around them full of people and feeling like they, they don't know anyone. You can find relational poverty in homes. You can find it in, in marriages. You can find it in, in dormitories. Uh, you can find it in neighborhoods. I'm always surprised how many people I meet now are like, yeah, I moved in this neighborhood and I don't know anyone, 
Well, how long have you lived there? Oh, like 20 years. <laughs> you still don't know anyone. No, I don't know anyone. None of us, none of us talk. We're all around here, but we're, we're, all, we're all alone. It's people sitting in a coffee shop full of, full of neighbors, full of people who live in the community. Now, I always find it really interesting. I, I, I have a lot of meetings at Starbucks because um, I just want to get out of here sometimes. And I go down there, and I'm always surprised to see people, like there'll be somebody at a table sitting alone and somebody at a table sitting alone. And, and sometimes I'll see people I know. And I always like wonder, in our culture, we're so polite, like why don't we just, if you're alone, why don't you just get up from your table and go sit at another table with people and just invite yourself in? Like, hey, I was here and I was alone and I had no one to talk to and you're here and relationships are important, so let's just, right, we don't do that. That's not like culturally cool, but why not? Why not? Why, uh, why is there so much relational poverty in our world? Now, researchers have come up with kind of four things that come up again and again and again about relational poverty. Uh, the first one that you'll find on these lists is because of the breakdown of families. And what they've said is you just have a lot of families today. They live under the same roof. They have the same last name, but there's no relationships going. They don't eat meals together. They don't share uh, life together. They're in the same house, but they're all, you know, in terms of relationships, it's relational poverty. There's increased mobility. Um, you know, they said it's very interesting how people just move, uh, pick up and move um, in ways that, that people never used to do and move away from family and move away from their ancestors. And what's happened is because people move so often and so much, a lot of times they say kids grow up and there's no connectedness to, to any community and that's leading to relational poverty. There, there's busyness. All right, so here's what I could tell you. Like, everyone I know is busy. Everyone. Uh, like, every, the students I know are busy. Uh, the spouses I know are busy. Uh, the neighbors are busy. Church members are busy. And many of us are just too busy to be connected to other people. And the fourth thing that comes up on every one of these lists is social media. Now, you know, uh, social media is neutral. It's not good. It's not evil. It's what you make of it. It's just unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people who use social media to build honest, open relationships. It's mostly just photo ops where we post our, our best pictures of our best days. But it's not, we're not really building meaningful, intimate relationships with people. We just have a facade of, of that. But in spite of all that, God has designed us to thrive together. So how do we foster that? Well, when you read through the New Testament, and I mentioned this to you before, but there's a phrase in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek, it's the phrase one another, one another. And you'll find that phrase 57 different times in the New Testament. And many of these are instructive because these are ways that we grow together, that we relate together as a spiritual family. Now there's 57 of them, and I'm not going to cover 57 today, but I am going to try to cover three. Three one another verses that I think can really help us in terms of growing together as a spiritual family. So let's look at those. The first one in your notes is this. Uh, be devoted to one another. And I get this from Romans 12, 10. Uh, it says this. And uh, by the way, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to read some scripture uh, several times this morning. And there's a two-word phrase, one another, and you're going to fill those in for me. So I'm going to read, and I'm going to stop at one another, and you're going to dive in. That's how it's going to work. So let me start, and you'll dive in. In Romans 12:10, be devoted to. 
Yeah, absolutely. Very good. In brotherly love, outdo in showing honor. So let's look at this. If you have a, 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 a pen, you might underline or circle the word devoted in your notes. That word devoted in the Greek is a word that refers to um, affectionately cherishing family members. It's a word that's often used in the Greek to denote a relationship of um, a husband to a wife, of a, of a of a parent to a child or, or a grandparent to a child. It's, it's that kind of natural love and devotion that you find. Um, because that's, you know, that's kind of natural. You, you tend to just naturally be devoted to the person you fall in love with, to the person you're dating or that you've married. Uh, parents tend to be devoted to their kids. Grandparents tend to be devoted to their grand. This is natural stuff. You don't typically have to teach this or give classes on this or go to college for this. It's, it's natural. People in these relationships just look for ways to show affection, to, to meet needs. Do you want to talk and spend time with them and bless them but here what it says is as believers we need to have those same kind of relationships with people we're not related to so what it's saying is we need to kind of draw the circle bigger so you might say well in my life I've got my my spouse and my kids and I have a devoted relationship with them what he's saying is let's let's push this out let's let's include some other people in that kind of affectionate relationship now of course the challenge is I yeah, I know and sometimes people come to me and go, I want to do that. Pastor, I want, I tried. I tried to push out, but the person I tried to let in, I discovered like they're annoying, you know? Like they're annoying or they're super needy. And I really don't want to let anyone super needy into my, you know, circle. Or they, they'll never stop talking. And they call me all the time. Or, or sometimes, you know, they'll be like, well, they spend differently. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy what they buy. I, I don't think it's right. I wouldn't wear what they wear. I, I, you know, they, they dress differently. They school their kids differently than, than we do. And I just, that's, I'm, I'm having a hard time with that. Or, or they run in different social circles than we do. And so we, we don't, it's hard to talk. Or we talk and they kind of have faulty theology and uh, you know we don't quite believe the same thing on certain issues or here's a here's one that's coming up a lot right now people will say uh they vote differently right they're not they're not going to vote like i vote and i can't i just can't get over that it's hard for me to be devoted to someone who's going to vote for whoever now i'll just tell you this it's just a kind of a side note for a moment so i've I've really tried as your pastor to stay out of this, you know, just to like have in individual conversations, but I really haven't said anything from up here about the upcoming election, but it just comes up so much. And now what I'm seeing on Facebook is just breaking my heart when I see some of the things that Christians are saying and the, the fights that they're picking and the way that they're dividing the body of Christ. And so I'll just tell you what I've told people individually and we'll move on. And I know I'll probably offend some people, but, and it's my, the way I'm looking at this election is, is real simple. I just don't think God has a horse in this race. I just don't. Because I don't think God judges on a curve which is how we often tend to do it. Well, I'm gonna vote for the lesser of two evils. See, this might become as a, su a surprise to you, but God doesn't vote that way. <laughs> God's not, God doesn't go, well, I'll vote for the lesser of. No, God's looking for righteousness. I gotta be honest, I'm just not seeing, I'm not seeing righteousness from anybody. It's not. 
it's breaking my heart. But here's the reason I bring it up. Because what I think we should do is I think we should pray. And I think we should get involved in the political process. And I think we should become informed. And I think we should have discussions. And then I think we should vote. But here's what we absolutely should not do. We should not fight and we should not divide the body of Christ over this election. Because we have a king and he is the king of a kingdom that will last forever. And let me tell you, there have been a lot of bad rulers throughout human history and it hasn't made one ounce of difference when it comes to the kingdom of God. So, do not divide over this. Do not fight over this. Do not hurt other people over this. Yes, pray about it. Vote your conscience. But do not divide over this. So, be devoted, right? And I think the reason he says be devoted to love one another is because if we're not devoted, it's not gonna happen. Right? He says don't be passive. Be active in building relationships with other believers. In fact, here's how active you should be. You might underline that word, outdo. So that's a great word in the Greek. That word outdo in the Greek means to lead the way for others. So what he's saying here is, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And watch, here's how you do it. Lead the way for one another in showing honor. And that word honor there just means to highly value something. So I, I love what he's saying here. Get, don't miss this. He's saying this. You don't honor other people because they earn it. You do it because you are devoted and you are going to lead in this. You are going to take the lead in showing honor to other people, not because they deserve it, but because you are devoted to God. Now, of course, the problem is, in our society, we tend to be more devoted to ourselves more than we are to other people, and that always causes problems. And I, uh, I have an email, so I get some of the greatest stories from you guys, and sometimes I have places to use them and sometimes I don't, but when I was studying this week, I thought of this email that I got actually several months back, and this is from Carol Thomas, who is a part of our, our church body, and she shared with me a story about her daughter, Lori, who has since passed on to be with the Lord, but she's telling a story about Lori years back when she was an agent with American Airlines, and I just wanted to read this to you because it's such a great story story. She says, apparently there was a mix-up with uh, certain seats on a particular flight, and um, a couple had taken their seats that they thought were theirs, but apparently they weren't theirs, and then along came another couple, and the man had his tickets, and he said to the couple sitting in the seats, you're sitting in our seats, and it's not just that he said it, he wasn't very nice about it at all. So the couple who were in the seats, apologized and explained that they had been told that those seats were theirs and they weren't sure what to do. And there was a couple standing up who were kind of irate about it. He said they were their seats. And so the flight attendant comes along and said to the couple who were standing up, they, uh, whose seats had been accidentally taken by another couple, that she could give them two other seats together that would be just as good if they were okay. But the man who was standing up said, I don't want another seat. I want the seats I was assigned being very belligerent about this. So the flight attendant wasn't sure what to do. 
And she says, so our daughter Lori had boarded the plane to say goodbye to some of the passengers and she saw the situation. So she told the irate man and his wife to, to please forgive them and to go ahead and take the seats that they were assigned. And she said to the couple who were seated, please get up and follow me and I'll take you to two other seats, which she did. She took them all the way to the front of the plane and sat them in first class, best seats in the house, shook their hands, they thanked her. But she said, you should have seen the look on the irate man's face when he realized he got what he was given and it wasn't that great, right? It's like, got what he wanted and how many times have we done that? We demand our way, we demand our rights and in the end we realize, right? It really wasn't that great to begin with. See, putting others first is really a faith thing, right? It's, it's, it's trusting what God has said in his word. It's trusting that if we put other people first, it's trusting that if we, as he says, if we outdo one another, if we take the lead in showing honor to others and serving others and giving up our seats for others and doing for others, it's really trusting by faith that God will take care of us. It's a faith thing. But imagine for a moment, imagine a church where everyone owned this. Imagine a church where when people came through the doors on Saturday night or Sunday morning, it wasn't like, uh, am I greeting or helping people find parking or working in the nursery, but every person who walked through the door owned this. Every single person who walked through said, I'm going to take the lead today. I'm going to take the lead in serving others. Imagine a marriage like that. Imagine a family like that. <laughs> Imagine dinner time in a family like that. Imagine a neighborhood like that. Imagine working someplace like that or school like that. The big question is this, who's gonna take the lead? God says, that's you. You're to take the lead. Be devoted to one another. Here's the second one another I wanna talk about for a minute. Seek out one another. So this is a, a little bit different than um, the last one. And I get this from John 13, 34 and 35. Great passage. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you. So he doesn't use the word commandment lightly. It's not a new suggestion I have for you or here's a brainstorming idea for you. He says a new commandment I give to you that you love just as I have loved you, you also are to love. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for now, we're going to look at this more next week, but I want to say a few things about this. When he says love one another, it's a command, so it's a, it's a big deal. How, though? How do we love one another? Well, he says, here's how, as I have loved you. So let's think about that for a minute. How did Jesus love us? Well, first of all, he was in heaven where he is glorified, where he is honored, where his will is always done. And he left heaven and he came down to earth. He sought after us. And when he was here, he sought out people. He made time for people. I'm guessing Jesus' to-do list was pretty long, but he always had time for people. And he spent time with them, and if they invited him over, he'd go to their house, and he'd have meals with them, and he'd heal them, and he'd talk with them, and he'd feed them, and he'd put up with them, and he eventually went to the cross for them. That's how we seek out other people like Jesus did. We make time in our day. We put them on our to-do list. It's not just an idea. It's not even just a value. We put it on our calendar. We put it in our schedule. We seek them out. In fact, there's a passage in Acts that describes the very first church, and it's just like this passage in the flesh. Here's what it looked like in that very first church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, that is eating meals in their homes, the people in this first church received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice what it says, and day by day. So day by day, they were gathering at the temple. In other words, day by day, they were making time for worship and they were making time for teaching and and they were making time to pray together. They had to make that time. And day by day, they were gathering in their homes So maybe in the evening, a few people would go to someone else's house for dinner. They'd have some fellowship, have some food. They might pray together, talk together, encourage one another. And sometimes, I mean, when you read back, sometimes a lot of people say, well, yeah, pastor, but things are different now. That was 2,000 years ago. And we're a lot busier today than they were back then. (laughs) Which just really shows ignorance when it comes to history. Like, just think about this for a minute. We're busier today than people were 2,000 years ago. Let's talk about how busy people were 2,000 years ago. For one thing, if you were a Gentile, in order to make a living wage, you worked seven days a week. There was no five-day work week. It was seven days from sunup to sundown. If you were a Jew, you took one day off. So it was a six-day work week. There was, no, there was no vacation. There was no sick leave. There was just leave, you know? Uh, it took all of your time to make a living wage. We don't work today like they worked back then when it comes to time. It took more hours to make a living back then. Uh, if you wanted to do things like cook a meal, you know, I, the other day I was at home and it was cold and I wanted a fire and I flipped the switch and I had a fire, you know. Back then, that's not how you got it. You want a fire? You got to get some firewood, right? You got to get some fuel. You got to cut it up. You got to start the fire. I don't know how you do that. I think you flip a switch and you start the fire and then you got to tend the fire. You want to cook a meal? There's no microwaves. There's no, there's no oven. There's no stove. Cooking a meal took a long time. Right? You want to clean the house? You want to you wash your clothes? You want to wash yourself? You want to commute anywhere? Everything took longer back then. Study after study continues to say that we, right now as a society, we have more discretionary time than anyone else in any other time of history. This is, and yet we say we don't have, but we don't have time for things that other people apparently had time for. Now, I, yeah, I know that making time for other people can be a big hurdle. It could be a a challenge, I read an interesting study a couple weeks ago that said that the average, that average weekend attendance in the average Protestant evangelical church is declining. So attendance weekend in most churches right now in churches is declining and yet membership is not. Right, so what does that mean? It means you have the same amount of people in your church that are just coming less often. So they asked people who are coming to church less often, why are you coming to church less often? And the answer they got consistently was, we're just too busy. We're just busier than other people. Busier than we used to be. And church is just one of many options. Which just broke my heart. When somebody says church is just one of a lot of good options, and there was a list of options, and I thought about bringing them up, but I'm not going to bring them up because... If the voting thing didn't make you mad, this would surely offend you. But it's just, we don't even need to get into it. It was just heartbreaking to see the kind of activities that people thought were as just as valuable as as 
coming to church. Now granted, if church is just about you and that's it, if it's just about you and the songs you like and the sermons you like, then I can understand that if it's just about you. But it's not just about you. And when you don't come, there are people who, they, they don't get to see you. They don't, they don't get to be blessed by you. We're a family. We're, we're a body. This is, folks, this is not an option, at least as far as God is concerned. This is not an option. See, the real issue has never been how busy we are. The real issue is our values and our priorities because we always find the time to do what's most important. And here's what I've learned as a pastor. Everybody is busy. I haven't met anyone who's not. Everyone I know is busy. Everyone's busy. Everyone has a long to-do list. Everybody wants a nap. Everybody I know. But the Bible is clear. We need to love right nap. We need to love one another. And that means we need to seek one another out. And I know that for, so there's kind of two groups of people here. I know there's some of you who are scratching your heads and going, wait, we're at, this is a point in a sermon? <laughs> because this is your life. You love seeking people out. You live to be with people. It's just not everybody's that way. For some of us, fellowship and making time for fellowship is more like it requires discipline. I thought this week, it, it, for some of us, it's more like exercise. So I've shared this with you before, but it was six years ago, and I was kind of doing one of those, evaluating my life, and you know, where have I been, what have I done, and where am I going, and what do I want to do? And I had come up with some plans, some things that I thought needed to change in my life. Um, and one of those things was, I needed to start getting some regular exercise, because at that point in my life, I was not. Um, I, wasn't, I was sitting at a desk and writing sermons and sitting at Starbucks and drinking mochas. And that was, this was my exercise. And I knew I needed to get something going. And so I kind of thought about it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to pay to join a gym. And uh, so I'll, you know, I'll take up running, okay, which I've never done. I don't run unless someone's chasing me. But I was like, all right, I'm, that sounds reasonable because here's why I'm going to run. I don't have to pay a gym to run. And I can just, you know, get some running clothes and I can go out on the dike and I can run late at night when no one can see what a spaz I am. Sounds perfect right? And I can just go run and get my exercise. So I made my plan. I, but I'll tell you this, I felt like, and I didn't start running because I, I enjoyed it or I thought it was fun. I did it because I knew it would be good for me. But the hardest part about running was not deciding to do it and it was not getting the shoes and it was not, not it, the hardest part was to stop doing something and to start running, right? It's always hard to start doing something you've never done before. That means you have to stop doing something. You have to stop and start. And that's often the hardest, that's where a lot of us get caught up. Oh, I'd love to run. Oh, I'd love to get in fellowship. I wanna do it, but you have, that means you have to stop doing something so you can start doing something else. And I'll tell you, Six years later, um, for me, I'm still, I'm not one of those people. Running is not fun for me. Um, I don't live for that. I, I, I do it because I, I believe it's good for me. Um, and even after all these years, six years of running, um, I still, there comes a point every day where I have to be like, I have to stop something so I can go do something else that's important. And I think that when it comes to fellowship for some of us, it's a, it's a little bit like that. And for some of you, it's not hard, but for some of you, seeking out relationships is just, it's work. And you're like, you know, where will I find the time? And, you know, and then if I do find the time, 
Like I said, you know, what if the other person ends up being annoying? Or, you know, what if I get in a grow group and I have to make small talk and I don't like small talk? Or, you know, what if, what if I have to share my feelings and I, I don't want to share my feelings? Or, you know, what if, what if they come into my house and their shoes are dirty and they walk on my carpet and they get in my refrigerator and drink my Diet Coke and, you know, I go to their house and they have a cat and it sits on my lap and just, you know, again, here's my pastoral advice. Just trust God. Just have some faith. Do what he says. Seek out these relationships by faith. And if it turns out to be fun, and sometimes this happens, people say, well, we joined a grow group. I did not want to join a grow group. I did not want to do it. I love our grow group. If that's you, then just enjoy it. If it's not you, right, then keep doing it because you love God and you want to obey him and you love people. And that's how you do it. And then here's the third one. So seek people, which is often a hard thing, and I just want to do one more here. And I know our time is short, but this one's so good. And I know for some of you, you'll be like, now this I can do. Provoke one another, all right? Provoke one another, but, but provoke in a particular way. So let's look at the provoke here. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I love this verse because there's so much here. But let's just unpack a couple things. First of all, that word consider. So that's a great word in the Greek. It means to observe something, to study something, to discover, to, 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 to perceive. I call it relational research. When he says, let us consider. He says, do some relational research. Think about, like, maybe it's your, your spouse, maybe it's one of your kids, maybe it's a friend. It says, you know, like, think about that person. You know, get out a pad of paper. What, what, what kind of personality do they have? What are they like? What are their dislikes? What's, what's their background? Ask them some questions. Find out what makes them tick spiritually. Because we're all a little bit different in terms of what makes us tick. And then he says this, stir up. And that, the, the, that phrase stir up, those words mean in the Greek to provoke or to incite. <laughs> right? Like let me ask you this. What do you tend to provoke in other people? What do you tend to provoke? Maybe it's, maybe it's shallowness. Maybe you provoke like shallow conversations. You know, maybe you provoke sarcasm in, 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 in conversations. Maybe you provoke negativity. Maybe when people come to you and spend time with you and they leave, they're way more negative than before. Maybe you provoke stress. Maybe you provoke materialism. Maybe you provoke conflict. Here what he says, here's, here's what you want to provoke in people. You want to provoke love, and good works, good deeds. My question is this, have you considered how to spiritually provoke the people around you? Have you really thought about this? Have you done this with your spouse? Have you thought about your spouse and considered how to, how to spiritually poke them, to provoke them to love and good deeds, or your kids, or your parents, or your grow group? Have you thought about how to do that? Some of you, you know, you got holiday meals coming up and, and uh, maybe, and I hear this sometimes like, oh, Thanksgiving's coming and everyone's coming over and Uncle John's gonna be here and oh, he's just always arguing and, you know, always inciting and provoking. And, but have you really thought about that? Like, what could you do to provoke something different in him this year? To provoke love and good deeds. What does he mean by good deeds? He means provoking other people to be compassionate, provoking other people to be generous, to, to humbly serve, to do the right thing, even when it's hard, to be obedient to God. So how do we provoke people? Well, there's two basic ways, through what you do and through what you say. So you can provoke people through your actions, 
When you live like Jesus, that often is very, you know, that provokes things in people. When you, when you love as he loved, when you serve as he served, when you're generous, when you forgive, right? Have you ever seen someone who was sinned against and they just forgave the other person genuinely? And does it, have you ever stopped and thought, wow, like that's different? It provokes you. It provokes you to think about that. It provokes you sometimes to want to be like that. By, by being generous, by being forgiving. By, we can provoke people by how we deal with stress and how we act, how we react, by being people of prayer. We can provoke people to love and good deeds. And we can do it by our words, certainly. In Colossians 3.16, it says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Because words are powerful, right? The words that we speak to other people, they have a lot of power. So what he says is this, let the word of Christ dwell in you. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying don't go try to be something you're not. First of all, let God's word dwell in you. That's where it starts. So you read it, you think about it, you pray about it, you meditate on it, you, you get teaching on it, you talk with people about it, and then you pass it on to other people. That's what you give them. So for me, I actually have a system for doing this. Um, I have a to-do list on my phone that I look at all day long, and I've gotten in this habit, I'll pick a, I used to call it a verse of the day, but it's not really a verse of the day. I'll find a verse, and I'll put it at the top of my to-do list, and it always stays there. And I look at my to-do list all day long, which means I see that verse all day long. I used to call it the verse of the day, but it's usually more like the verse of a week, because I'm a slow learner. Uh, recently, I had a verse of the month. <laughs> I don't even want to get into that, but it was a verse where, you know, I feel like I can't really move on until I've really grasped it and, and grappled with it and put it into practice. But my, my, what I do is this, I, I pick the verse, I put it up there, I look at it, I think about it when I'm driving, I think about it when I'm running, I meditate on it, I get some reading on it. Here's what I do, I kind of soak in it, and then I give it to other people. I pass it along to them. I might text it, I have friends I'll just text a verse to, right? No explanation, nothing, just boom, give them a text. I might post it on Facebook like I did this week. I might email it to someone. God might bring somebody to mind and I might call them and share it with them. I might inject it in a conversation at dinner with my family. And, and the reason I do it is this, because I noticed a while ago that some people do it with me and I just always really appreciate it. I have people in my life who will text me a verse and I just always, I've never had someone text me a verse and go, eh, I, I just love it. It's always meaningful to me. And so I began to do that with other people because I find that really of all the words that I could speak to people, to the people I love, the words of Christ are the best words I could possibly give them. And God's word is powerful in a way that my words are not. God's word grows us, it changes us, it corrects us, guides us, and builds faith. And of all the words that we can give to other people, the word of God is the greatest gift. And he says this, and we'll end with this. Notice he says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness. So here's what I've noticed. A thankful heart produces thankful words. Have you ever been in a situation where maybe it's Thanksgiving and they're going, hey, well, let's all share something around the table we're thankful for. Have you ever been in a situation like that and you don't have anything you're thankful for and then you have to think of something? It's always awkward, isn't it? It feels really dirty and like, oh, I gotta go, I gotta make something up really quick. And here's the deal. A thankful heart will always produce thankful words. And thankful words 
impact people who hear them. I think about it this way. When you're with someone and they complain to you and they gripe and whine, how does that tend to impact your heart? Now, when you're with people who are thankful and share things they're thankful and grateful for, how does that tend to impact your heart and your attitude? Now, let me ask you this. Which type of impact do you want to have on your spouse, on your kids, on your friends, on your grow group, on the person sitting next to you? How can you be the kind of person who shares thankfulness and encourages people? Well, you got to have a thankful heart. You have to cultivate a thankful heart. You pay attention to God's blessings. You, you, you count them. This is an easy time of the year. We're coming on Thanksgiving, right? So it's a great time to do that. And then you intentionally pass them on to other people. But thankfulness, a thankful heart. So let me close with, with a couple of questions here. The first one is this. Who do you need to be devoted to right now? As you think about the people in your life, I'm just wondering, did God bring anyone to mind this morning? Somebody who is in your circle, but you just, you need to be devoted to them and you need to be taking the lead. Maybe you feel like our relationship isn't what it used to be and they just seem so self-centered and so preoccupied. And so what God says is, well, then you take the lead then you take the lead and you start showing honor to them. Is there somebody that God has put on your heart? Here's another one. Who do you need to seek out for spiritual community? Are there people in your life and is there time in your calendar each day possibly where you have time with people? And if not, my question for you is this. How are you gonna do that? Where are you gonna do that? And by the way, I just mentioned this. If, if if you're part of Gateway and you're not in a grow group, that's a great place to start. We have groups that meet every week, some meet that every other week, but it's a place for you to go, be in spiritual community. In my group, we only meet once every other week, but we text each other with prayer requests and scripture during the day. We hang out at our house, I've told you this before, but in our group, we have an open fridge policy and I can tell you, people in our group literally do it. And the other day, I had somebody in my grow group who's a track coach and was running with his team by the house and he just, I was at home and he just walked to the front door, walked right through my kitchen, went to the refrigerator, pulled out a Diet Coke, went back out, closed the front door and went running off. Like, and that's the kind of relationship we have with our grow group, but it's great. It's great. Who do you need to seek out spiritual community with? And the third one is this. Who do you need to be spiritually provoking? Who is there right now and you need to be provoking them to love and to good deeds? Somebody needs to and you're the person. That means you're gonna have to think about them, pray about them, get to know them and get active. Now, I'll close with this. I, you know, I preach week in and week out and every weekend we have these three-point outlines and we have these things to do at the end. I just, it, it really gets easy to get in the habit sometimes, doesn't it, of coming and listening to a message and going home and filing the, you know, I know you probably throw them away, but some people file them and laminate them and okay, but you, you put them away and that's it. You wait for next week. I'm just begging you, do not do that with this. Do something. Call someone talk to someone, put it on your calendar, be devoted, seek out, and provoke. Let's pray.